Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good. All right. Now, let's get started this morning. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to study your word together. We're thankful um, for the way in which you promise to give us life through it, that you promise to, uh, by your power of your Holy Spirit, um, to show us Jesus, to, um, to impart him to us in a, in a new and fresh way each time we study it. Together as your people, we pray that that would be so again this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, so we are continuing our study of the book of James, the epistle of James. Um, last week, we made it up to about <clears throat> chapter 4, uh, verse 10. So let's just talk a little bit of review um, about this uh, chapter 4 that we looked at last week. Um, uh, I'll just read it and we can just talk about it for a moment so we get it fresh in our minds. Um, last week you looked at these verses. James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and, so you, and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So what did we talk about last week in terms of the problems that James is addressing here in this Christian community to whom he writes? What is the, the worldliness that he's concerned about that they seem to be adopting or being tempted to adopt at least? <clears throat> it's not so much, you know, watching uh, moving pictures or, or um, you know, um, playing cards, that kind of thing, right? It's a different kind of worldliness that he's concerned about here. What, what is the nature of the worldliness? has to do with how you achieve things, right? How you, how you get what you want. Um, there's this really distinctive past uh, verse that James uses. Um, he says, you desire and you do not have, right? You desire and you do not have. That is a human condition, right? To desire and not have. All of us desire things that we do not have. But here's where the worldliness comes in. So you murder, right? So you go after what you desire and you do not have, and you possess it at all costs. You covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Does that make sense? What James is talking about here, the worldliness he is talking about here, is the means by which we seek to achieve the things that we desire, um, particularly perhaps justice. We'll see that in a second. Uh, This is what it means to be worldly. Um, How do you go about that? Do you go about it, um, as James said at the end of chapter 3, in a manner of 
um, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition um, because that will lead to disorder in every vile practice. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in this um, first few verses of chapter four. Disorder in every vile practice. Um, but James then and does has a turn at the latter part of the section we looked at last week. Um, for those who are trapped in this kind of worldly cycle, this cycle of, of violence, of, of covetousness, of, um, of going after things by worldly means, um, enforcing their own form of justice in the world, he says to be humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Uh, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Um, so we see that humility is the path forward. If we're going to avoid um, uh, the demonic wisdom um, that he talked about at the end of chapter 3 that expresses itself in this kind of worldly behavior, um, but rather cling to the heavenly wisdom, the wisdom that comes down from above, um, the wisdom that uh, leads to uh, purity, peace, gentleness, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere, that wisdom and the path for us sinners, because all of us struggle with this kind of worldliness, is humility. Uh, it's humility. And that's what James is going to unpack this morning in the sections we'll look at, what it really looks like to be humble. Any questions or thoughts about that before we jump into new stuff? Yes, sir. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. Ecclesiastes is certainly an important book as a backdrop of James, I think. I think James is definitely wrestling with that, with that kind of wisdom literature. Often James is, is called one of the, you know, kind of the wisdom epistle of the New Testament, right? And then it builds on uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and um, some of those uh, wisdom literature uh, that we see in the Old Testament. That's right. That's a good connection. All right, let's look um, at the first way in which James exhorts us to be humble in verses 11 and 12, um, to live out this humility, to embrace. Remember at the end of chapter 3, he called um, that wisdom that comes from above um, the meekness of wisdom, that, that true um, godly wisdom is meek. Um, is expressed in meekness. And here he begins to unpack how, what that looks like. What does it look to have, to have meekness of wisdom? Verse 11 and verse 12, listen carefully. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of a law, do a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? How is this little section here express the humility, the meekness of wisdom that James is exhorting his readers to embrace. Yep. 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 
<laughs> That's right. Everybody here at Gage said, if you have a correct assessment of who God is in relationship to yourself, um, you would not uh, want to judge anyone um, because you would realize uh, your own um, inability to do that, your own uh, lack of authority um, to exercise judgment over others. What do you all think of that? I think that's right. I think that's exactly what James is talking about here. Um, what, what are you doing when you are setting your, when you, when you judge someone, right? By speaking words, right? Uh, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, that's probably speak, talking about sort of public judgment, right? Uh, words that are spoken publicly and then private judgment, judgment that occurs within someone's heart. What are you doing? Uh, how are you setting yourself in relationship to your brother or your sister when you do that kind of thing? Like you're above them. That's right, right? You're, you're placing yourself over them in some kind of authority. Um, now, th- th- there are times when uh, we do have authority. We've been cloaked by, with authority by God um, as parents or maybe as school teachers or um, as, as leaders in the church um, or, or in our place of employment. And we do have to make judgments about people, right? We have to distinguish good from evil, right from wrong, those kinds of things. And it's not wrong for us in those scenarios to exercise judgment um, that God has entrusted to us. We have to do so carefully and in a measured way and with humility and all those things. But James is more talking here about the kind of judging that happens within a community between peers, right? The kind of judgment um, that people exercise against one another. And yeah, um, Kinda's right. When we do this, um, we set ourselves above one another. Um, we act as a judge. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. You are sitting in some ways above the law and applying it to others. And then James says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who is the one lawgiver and judge? What's that? God, or more specifically, Jesus Christ, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I think this is really important. Um, what, what, what James is referring to here is, I think, initially the judgment that Jesus will exercise, um, um, especially over the nation of Israel, um, the apostate nation of Israel in 70 AD. Uh, but he's also pointing forward, ultimately, to the reality that on the last day, Jesus will judge um, the thoughts and intentions and words and actions um, that we participate in, um, uh, he will require an account of those things. This is something that Jesus taught um, extremely clearly on multiple occasions in his ministry. Uh, and the New Testament um, echoes it. You see it in Romans, you see it um, here in James, um, you see it elsewhere um, in the writings of Paul. Um, you see it, of course, in Revelation, um, that there will be a final judgment um, that we believe, it's important to remember that as, as, as uh, Protestant Christians, um, we confess, well, just as Christians, all Christians believe this, um, in the resurrection of the dead at the last day, both the just and the unjust, right? The righteous and the wicked will raise bodily on the last day, and all will stand before the Lord Jesus for judgment, um, the righteous receiving um, uh, the due works of their hands and their trust and their faith in Christ, um, and they will be uh, blessed, and the, the wicked will be um, judged um, for eternity um, by the Lord Jesus. But all of us will be judged. And I think that's a really important thing to reckon with um, because 
how does that how does that reality if you know that you are going to be judged and your neighbor will be judged um, on the last day by the only lawgiver and judge how does that change your posture uh, towards them in, in the context that James is describing here I think it makes you humble you know what were you gonna say Wendy yeah Yes, we'd be very careful. Yeah, we'd be be sobered by it. Yeah. Yes, be careful. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think if you don't, and this is one of my concerns, honestly, in, in modern American evangelicalism, is that no one ever talks about the last judgment, basically. Um, it's just not discussed, right? Um, and I think, I think the problem, the way that that really hurts us as Christian people is that we begin to feel like judgment is our responsibility, right? Um, and not just judgment, not just making distinctions, but the enforcement of God's justice in the world. Um, is now our responsibility. It's up to us uh, to make things right. Um, it's up to us to produce the righteousness of God, um, the justice of God. And I think that that is um, really dangerous. It's really dangerous because um, we're not in a position to do that very well, right? Any justice that we achieve in our lives is going to be incomplete um, and uneven, and it's going to take a lot of work on our behalf. Um, uh, and, 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 and it's going to tempt us to do the kinds of things that James is talking about earlier in terms of worldly wisdom. Um, and also, when we enforce justice, the justice that we think the world needs, whose standard of justice are we ultimately enforcing? Our own, right? My justice, what I think is right. Uh, my interpretation of the law of God and how it applies um, to my neighbor's life. And I think part of what James is saying here is, there's only one lawgiver, only one judge. There's only one person who can actually do this, who can save and destroy. Who are you then to judge your neighbor? I really think the, a, a right understanding of the final judgment is absolutely necessary for us as Christians to fully embrace an ethic of love and patience and steadfastness in our lives, right? Because if we believe in the final judgment, we can believe, well, Jesus has got it ultimately, right? Um, that infraction, that person that has um, taken advantage of me, um, I don't have to, you know, get my piece of flesh, get my, you know, revenge, get my quote-unquote justice. Um, I can trust that the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, sees all, that he will judge all men and all will be made right on the last day. I think, I think the last judgment is actually, it should be a, a deeply freeing doctrine for us, um, especially those of us who, are, who, are, who are, have put our faith in Jesus and know that 
whatever we might have to be uh, judged for in the last day, it'll be covered by the blood of Christ, right? We don't have to be afraid of that. We should be sobered by it, but not afraid. Um, and we, and this is how our confessions talk about um, the final judgment, that we something we should anticipate and look forward to, because it will mean a righting of every wrong. It will mean the vindication of God's people over and against their enemies. It will mean actual justice um, will be displayed. Yeah, John. Right. Yeah. The problem with setting ourselves up as judges is that you often we're doing the very same thing that we're, you know, blasting other people for. Right. <laughs> right. That we're, we're guilty of the same thing. And, that, and it is interesting how that works often. Uh, the thing that often upsets us the most is something that we um, do. Yes. And then Scott, Wendy. In terms of the final judgment, you mean? Well, final judgment, but also like the separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. Like the separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the separation of church and state. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think many of us feel this pressure to to bear more responsibility than we should for the world, I think is what I'm saying. That ultimately we have to understand our limitations and our, um, you know, we're not, we're not judges in the way that Jesus is. It's not our responsibility in the way that it is his. Scott, what, what was your thought or question or comment? Yes, yeah, yeah, that's a question um, that folks have asked me before. Obviously, it's one that makes sense, right? Even if I'm a Christian and I hurt people, um, what does Jesus do with that hurt? Or I'm hurt by others. Um, and I don't know what it's going to look like. I do, what I've told people in the past is I think we have to think about the totality of God's law and how God's law works, um, even in the Old Testament, to get some principles for this. And what you see in the Old Testament is the principle of restitution, is at the heart of the law of God for the people of God. Um, it's very different from our justice system today, right, which is punitive, basically. Um, you know, if you break the law, you get punished by the state. Um, and the, the law that God gave to Israel, um, if you um, broke the law and, and stole something from your neighbor, you, didn't, you weren't locked up for 10 years in a cage, right? You, were, you had to pay it back um, in addition and, and more, right? You had to make restitution for the crime you had committed and I think that that principle of restitution is really important when we think about the last judgment. I do think that we can be confident that in some way restitution will be made for all the evil that has been done. All the evil we have done, all the evil that has been done to us. And I don't know what that means exactly, right? I don't know if I can chart that out, but that's such a key principle in the law of God in the Old Testament, which is perfect and right. And you know, it is the law that um, is given to, to humanity. Um, that I, I really think it, that that concept of restitution has to be part of the way in which Jesus will judge the world, uh, requiring restitution of those who have done wrong. That, that's my best answer to that question. Um, even for those of us who are clothed by the blood of Christ, whose sin is covered, we're, we're not, we're not going to go to hell, but there, I think there has to be some concept of restitution.
Right. There will be some cons. I mean, and the Reformed confessions are very clear that we believe in a gradation of judgment. Both um, there will be some that will be judged um, better than others. I don't know how to put it exactly. Um, right? We'll all be in some ways clothed equally in the righteousness of Christ and acquitted of our sins. And yet, yet there are gradations of judgment, both positively and negatively. And the Bible teaches that again and again. It's impossible um, to ignore. Um, and that's, I think that's part of the answer to that question, too. And it, and it should be deeply sobering. Um, it must be. Yeah, Jeff. Yes. person to repentance, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, Christian justice should be restorative, not not punitive. That's a really important principle. And it's important principles we think about the judgment we exercise, right? Because all of us are cloaked with authority in different ways and have the ability to judge others um, and, and need to judge others in a, in a sense. Our children, um, those under our authority, and we really need to wrestle with the way that justice works in the scriptures, that it's not punitive, it's restorative, right? It's, it's based around restitution. It's based around um, someone's heart um, being redirected in a new way. I think that's really important. It's very different from the judgment of the state, um, at least in our modern context. Yes, Eric, and then we'll move on. So how does the death penalty fit into this, what we're talking about? And because there were capital crimes in the Old Testament? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and one I don't know that I'm fully prepared to answer. Um, I think that there are certainly some crimes um, which the just penalty is death. Um, and I think the Old Testament gives us a guide to that. Um, and uh, in some ways, I mean, I think we have to be Even in, even in that, 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 that death penalty that's exercised in the Old Testament and the law of, of Israel is not itself without mercy in the sense that um, there's an opportunity for the sinner or the, the criminal in that case to receive judgment and to repent of their sin and to be given mercy by God. Um, you know, the death penalty is, is not necessarily um, divorced from God's mercy and kindness and love. Um, and so I guess I would say that. I don't know. I don't want to go too far down that path. But I do think that God's law matters and that we, we need to wrestle with what it teaches. And it, it certainly takes, uh, there are certainly such a thing as capital crimes in the Old Testament. And that's something that we need to wrestle with. 
What does that mean in terms of restitution? I think part of what it means is that there are some crimes that you cannot fully make restitution for in and of your own body in this life, right? Um, and they're so heinous that they, they have to be dealt with in a really strong way. Yes, Jeff, and then I really want to move on so we don't get too trapped up here. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you think about the story of Achan, right, after after Jericho, that kind of thing. All right, so, the, so this one aspect of humility um, is the way in which we exercise judgment over others. We also should remember Jesus' words in Luke where he says, um, with the measure that you give, it will be measured back to you, right? Um, that this is one of the reasons we need to be very careful about judgment that how we judge others, Jesus says, is how we ourselves will be judged, um, which is a, a really important principle. Um, so we, we want to judge others out of humility um, and meekly and carefully uh, because that's the kind of judgment we want to receive, I believe. That's the kind of judgment I want to receive, at least. And, and honestly, the way in which we judge others um, actually, I think, reveals so much about our hearts, about our pride, our humility, um, um, to, to what extent those things exist for us. It's something to meditate upon, and it's something that we're tempted to do every day, right, to judge others. Uh, James also expresses the humility that he's talking about in verses um, 13 uh, through 17. Here's what he says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing and fails to do it, for him it is sin. How does that passage fit into this idea of the meekness of wisdom? the humbleness that James is calling his readers to embrace. Yes, Kim. You don't. Yeah, that's right. And if we really wrestle with that, right, um, it really changes our perspective. And this is, you know, one of the, one of the dangers of the age in which we live is that um, you know, you sort of feel like you have this social contract with, you know, reality that if you exercise and eat decent food and, you know, um, do the right things, quote unquote, you'll get 80 years, you know, like that's kind of the deal, right, um, that we signed up for um, and maybe even more. But that's crazy, right? And people knew that was crazy in the first century, right? They didn't have the expectation. Um, they knew that their life um, always was hanging by a thread and was a, you know, a, a virus away from ending, right? I mean, they wouldn't call it a virus, but, you know, um, something, you know, could happen at any moment. And I think that that, that is one of the, the real dangers about our society is in the way that we, we pretend as though um, 
death is always something that happens to someone else um, and not to us. And that's, you know, that's the exception to the rule, right? It's a really weird exception to the rule when it happens to everybody, right? But <laughs> that's not so much an exception to the rule. Um, that is the rule. Um, so I, I think, I think, yeah, I think that's right. That that, you know, what he's saying here is that your life, every moment of your life, is a gift. And if you really believe that and accept that, then how does that change the way in which you make plans and you you establish yourself and protect yourself and all these kinds of things? Yeah, Aaron. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I think definitely he's he is he is the what he introduces there in chapter four, um, this idea that uh, the Christians to whom James writes are are being tempted to sort of enforce the justice that they want um, using their own means, human means, even violence perhaps uh, they're tempted to use to enforce that justice. That that is that is absolutely what is happening. Um, and I think that has to do with judge the way that they're exercising judgment against others. Um, and it, yeah, like in this passage here, it has to do with the way that they're making plans and saying, you know, we're going to enforce the kingdom of God. We're going to bring about the justice that we want through our own means. Right. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. Yes, Mike. Right, their their profit. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's a fair, a fair point. Uh, Todd and then um, Jeremy. Yes, yes. And we've got these, these phrases that are begging for that kind of language, like doers of the law. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah, it's a it's a totally different value system, not just in terms of um, 
you know, what we often think of as morality, but, but uh, in terms of what charity is and what it actually means to, um, to submit to the law of God. And I, yeah, that's right. That's what French of the world here is something that is, is totally alien um, to the Christian context. And particularly, as Todd pointed out, it is connected to apostate Israel at this time in the way in which they are, they're doing everything that James is saying here. They are enforcing their own justice through violent means. Um, they are uh, making judgments um, and setting themselves up as judges over um, those who have come to trust in the Messiah, Christ, and Jesus. That's right. Um, so what does it really mean? Let's just think about this for a moment. And so he says, don't go say you're going to go to this and such town and, and do these things and make some money. Uh, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Right? And that's Ecclesiastes, right? Um, uh, what is your life? You are like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's not just Ecclesiastes. It's the Psalms. I mean, it's, it's a lot of places in the Old Testament. This idea, like Kim was saying, of being aware of your limitations as a human being is a key part of wisdom, right? Um, teach me to number my days, Psalm 90 says, that I might gain a heart of wisdom. Um, there's that always that connection between knowing our weakness and our frailty and our limitations and actually being wise. But then he says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So what does that actually mean? Does it just mean to append God willing to everything we say? Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so Gage is saying it's supposed to, to affect your heart um, in such a way that you really understand your limitations, um, such that it, it eventually comes out of your mouth and shapes um, how you think about the world. Did you have your hand up, David Taffert? Okay. You're thinking about saying something. Yeah, Jeremy. Yeah, the question is, what are you doing right now? Yeah, and that connects with verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin, right? Do what's in front of you. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Kendra's saying what this expresses itself in approaching God with an open hand about our desires, about our plans, about the things that we want and how we we hope that they'll come about. And that's that is right. I mean, that, and it's a very hard thing to do, I think, as all of us know. Right. To, to truly go to God with an, an openness to his will to say 
um, in, in, in union with Jesus, right, to him, uh, not my will but yours be done, um, as even as he did. Um, that is a very uh, difficult um, thing for us to do. But yeah, I think that's exactly what this is calling us to, that kind of approach to our lives. That's what true humility is, right? It's, I mean, it's interesting, these two sections, I mean, in the first section about judgment, he's really talking about humility towards our peers, towards others, humility horizontally. And here he's really working out what does it mean to be humble towards God? It means to acknowledge our limitations, to acknowledge the frailty of our plans, um, and to say, if the Lord wills, then I will do this. And to say that genuinely and honestly, such that it really shapes our hearts. All right, let me, I want to continue to move into this next section um, about the rich. Here's what I want you to think about with the rich. First, I want to read to you um, from Matthew real briefly a parable that Jesus told. Matthew 21, the parable of the tenants. I think it forms the backdrop to this passage here. Uh, Jesus told this parable, and he told it about his enemies at the very end of his life in Holy Week, right, in preparation for his death. He said to the leaders of Israel, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, right? He wanted the fruits of their labor. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will, put those he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and it, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Indeed, he was speaking about them, right? This is the parable Jesus tells to describe the wickedness of the leaders of Israel, um, that God, uh, Yahweh, the Father, um, is like the owner of a vineyard who has leased it out to tenants, and he comes again and again and wants the fruits of his vineyard. And what do they do um, to his servants, to the ones who come to reap the harvest? They kill them, right? They kill them again and again. They kill them. They keep the fruits of the harvest away from the master of the vineyard. And finally, he sends his son, his beloved son, and what do they do then? They say, this is the heir. Let us kill him and the vineyard will be ours. And Jesus says, what will he do, the master of the vineyard, when he comes for those tenants? And they say it, right? He will destroy them. 
He will wipe them out. He will judge them. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. And then he infects, in effect says, and I am the son, right? And then what do they do? They kill him, right? <laughs> they do it. Think about that when I read this. Listen. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, we might even say. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Remember the context for James writing these um, exhortations to these Christians to be patient, to, um, to not judge, to not be worldly and try to achieve the justice of God. The context is the great injustice they're receiving. They're the recipients of the persecution, especially of apostate Israel. I think James is now pivoting from addressing his readers, and now he is acting more away from wisdom literature and more into prophetic literature. And he is pronouncing judgment, I think, here, and promising judgment, joining with Jesus in doing so. Remember, Jesus is the one who again and again promised judgment upon apostate Israel, um, that the temple would be torn down and Jerusalem would be destroyed. Um, uh, James is echoing that, and he is speaking here um, to apostate Israel. Um, to, um, he's using the language of Jesus' own parable, and he is speaking here to the tenants of the vineyard, the ones who are taking the harvest for themselves, who are storing up treasure for themselves, who are holding back the wages um, of the laborers who mow their fields, um, who are even um, condemning and murdering the righteous person that is, especially the son, but even all the prophets, but especially the son who is sent, um, who are fattening their hearts for a day of slaughter, a day of slaughter that will come um, very soon. And, and I just want to put that before you. I think that that's the, the best way to take this. That this isn't just some, um, you know, uh, James wagging his finger at the people who are wealthy. Um, I think he's talking about the rich. Um, by that he means um, apostate Israel and their the spiritual wealth, even the wealth in terms of power that they have. One connection to show that is um, in chapter 2, verse 6, when he's talking about partiality, he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Who is the poor man? It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Who is oppressing the Christians at this point? Who is dragging the Christians into court? who is blaspheming the holy name of the, the honorable name of the Lord Jesus Christ by which they are called. It is apostate Israel. It is apostate Israel. They're the ones who are doing these things. And that is who James identifies in chapter 2 as the rich, and I think that's who he's speaking to here. Yes, Jeremy. 
absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, Kim. The way I think it's connected to the overall argument is this. I think that it connects back to um, the way in which we're going to resist friendship with the world, the way in which we are going to embrace the meekness of wisdom, uh, the humility of uh, being uh, measured in our judgments, uh, the humility of being um, uh, careful in the plans that we make, submissive to God's will, aware of our limitations, is, and especially for this context, this community, is if we believe that judgment is coming, right? I don't have to go after and take revenge on my kinsmen who are oppressing me because of my belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I can trust that Jesus promised that they would be judged and he will keep that promise. And I think James here is reiterating that promise of judgment. I think it connects really well in terms of the flow of argument to um, there's verse 12 of chapter 4. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Um, here he's, he's reminding, I think, his, his, his uh, Christian readers that Jesus has promised to do to the tenants of the vineyard um, uh, you know, what he spoke about in the parables. So that's how, and at length, really, in his teaching. So I think sometimes we, we forget this, that Jesus, if you really look at the Gospels and, and add up some of the stuff that, you know, Jesus talks a lot about judgment, a lot about judgment, um, and specifically about judgment of Israel. Um, he talks about it at length, frequently, and not very, um, like, in a really clear way. <laughs> with more clarity than he speaks about other things often. And I think we really have to take that seriously. That's something to think about. We can talk about it more next time if you want um, as we jump into chapter 5, but I want to put that before you. I would really encourage you to think about how that parable of the tenants in the vineyard um, may form the backdrop for that uh, prophetic word that James speaks there <coughs> at the beginning of chapter 5. All right, let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which um, the judgment of our Lord Jesus Christ, his righteous rule, which will be enacted, uh, frees us, Lord, to be limited, um, to be humble, um, to acknowledge that we do not see all ways clearly, Father. Uh, we cannot hardly even know our own heart, much less the heart of our neighbor. Um, our lives are like mist. Um, they come and they go. And all of our life is dependent upon your spirit at all times. Father, give us this meekness of wisdom. Give us this kind of humility uh, that James talks about here, uh, that we might live before you, um, uh, lives that are, are full of faith and full of obedience uh, as we walk in the way of your Son. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.